can turn to John chapter 21, please. Um, thank you to the halls for doing music today. Once again, baptisms next week. You know, one of the challenges is we don't know exactly who has or has not been baptized, but I cannot strongly encourage you enough. If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, it's something that Christ commands. You know, sometimes when you go to a store and they're like, hey, do you want to sign up for this card? And you're like, no. <laughs> Baptism is not some arbitrary add-on that you can take or leave. It is something that Jesus himself commands. So if you've never been baptized, please talk to me. Again, I promise I'm not going to criticize you that you haven't done it already. I'm not going to recoil in terror that you haven't done it. But it's something that can be fixed. The baptismal behind me. We'll get the water nice and warm. Honestly, in the wintertime, I come back there a couple times a week and just hang out. It's like a hot tub. I don't do that. But... It'll be a lot nicer than the next time we do baptisms in December when we do it out on uh, Keller Lake. So I would recommend doing it sooner rather than later. Um, but in all sincerity, if you do have any questions, please come to me. Happy to talk to you about it. Um, we do have four people getting baptized next week, which is very exciting. Uh, John mentioned that Will Faber is getting baptized, and then from the halls, we have Toby, we have Annalise and Olivia all getting baptized, and very excited for that, and it'll be a great service next week, and also as a reminder, we have a potluck afterwards, those are always a big hit, and we'll have the kids upstairs during the baptism service next week, which I think will also be good for them to see their friends getting baptized, and also just to be worshiping with us. So very excited for next Sunday, uh, but also excited for today. So John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in a place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of the large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And on this Memorial Day weekend, Lord, we thank you for those who have paid the ultimate price, who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our nation, for our freedom, for the cause of liberty. Lord, hundreds of thousands of men and women and wars going back to the American Revolution, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the Mexican-American War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Global War on Terrorism, the Persian Gulf War. Lord, we thank you for those who have sacrificed for our nation. And Lord, let us this weekend remember their sacrifices. Lord, but let us always remember the sacrifices of those who have died so that we can live in a free nation. In a free nation. Lord, we also want to pray for the community of Uvalde, Texas this week and the horrible tragedy that they have endured with this tragic school shooting. Lord, we especially want to pray for families of little children who were lost and of the two teachers who passed away. Lord, evil never makes sense. And we pray for those who have been personally touched by this shooting. Lord, we pray for our time today as we continue to study this wonderful gospel in your word. And Lord, we pray for baptisms next week. We pray for these people who are getting baptized, these kids who are getting baptized, that Lord, they would have long and fruitful lives of serving you and ministering to you, Lord, even from young ages. And Lord, for anyone else who has not been baptized, we just pray that they would be encouraged, that it is a good thing that it is a public profession of the faith that we have in Christ. It is something that you desire for us to do, Lord. It is something that is a symbol of the death that your son died and the resurrection from the dead that all who believe in Christ enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen. On the home stretch of the Gospel of John, we come to a scene where seven disciples have had an unsuccessful night of fishing and Jesus approaches them and enables them to have a miraculous bounty. But it's not really a story about fishing. In John's Gospel, we've seen other stories where there's so much underlying symbolism that there's more to the story than what's on the surface level. The first miracle in the Gospel of John was when Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding feast. But it's not primarily a story about wine. Because Jesus turns water in jars which were used for Jewish ceremonial washing into wine. And the point of that miraculous sign is that Jesus points to something greater than the Old Covenant. Yes, the wine is significant to the story, but it's not the ultimate point. In John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well about streams of living water, he's not really talking about water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. In John 9, when Jesus gives sight to a man who had been born blind. Yes, the miracle is significant, but it's also pointing to a deeper spiritual reality that the whole world is blind to God and that Jesus came to give sight. In our passage today, yes, the catch of the fish is nice, but it's a passage that's not ultimately about fish. It's pointing forward to the mission of God 
in the fellowship of the church. It's a fun passage this morning as we come near the end of this gospel. And this morning we'll look at the story in three scenes. Empty nets, the catch of the day, and breakfast with Jesus. First scene, empty nets. Beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. From the last event in John's Gospel, when Jesus appeared to Thomas in chapter 20, an undetermined amount of time has passed. It can't be more than a few weeks because Jesus' ascension was 40 days after the resurrection. Jesus comes to the Sea of Tiberias. We've already seen this body of water in John's Gospel. Also, a brief side note, the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee are the same body of water. And when it's called a sea, it's actually a large lake. It was on this sea that Jesus had fed multitudes in John chapter 6 and where he had walked on water. It's also the place where Jesus called his first disciples. The fact that they're at the Sea of Tiberias also means that the disciples are no longer in Jerusalem. They're in Galilee. Galilee is the area where so much of the ministry of Jesus had happened and where so much life had been shared between Jesus and his disciples. In Jesus' resurrection appearance at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where he first appears to a group of women, he tells them that in Matthew 28.10 to tell his brothers, the disciples, that he would appear to them in Galilee. And so after the resurrection... After the disciples have seen the risen Jesus, we see a group of disciples who were in Galilee. But it's not all of them. Verse 2 mentions the disciples who were present. Simon Peter. Thomas, called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee. The sons of Zebedee. And two others of his disciples were together. It's interesting. The first two disciples who get mentioned here. Simon Peter. A man who had denied Jesus after his arrest and who will be relevant in the next scene of this passage, or of this chapter. Thomas, a man who had been a skeptic of the resurrection before he actually had personally seen the risen Jesus. Nathaniel gets mentioned. The only other place where he's found in this gospel is in chapter 1. In that passage, Jesus makes statements about Nathaniel that are so striking to Nathaniel that Nathaniel immediately believes that Jesus is the Christ. John mentions the sons of Zebedee. Those are John, who wrote this gospel, and his brother James. As always, John never mentions himself or his brother in this gospel. And John also mentions two unnamed disciples. There's no way to determine who they are. Even the commentaries I read this week, none of them even tried to guess, which never happens. So we have seven disciples total. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Perhaps they're just trying to pass the time. Perhaps they're going back to work to try to earn a living. We know that Peter and several of the other disciples, including John and James, had been fishermen before being called by Jesus. So they're going out on the water. In other places in the Gospels, we see fishing as a metaphor for reaching people with the Gospel message. 
at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, when the Lord is calling his first disciples, he meets Peter and his brother Andrew fishing. Matthew 4, 19 and 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is calling them to be his disciples, and instead of simply catching fish, they will be catching people for the gospel. That event is also recorded in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. In fact, Luke's Gospel goes into even more detail. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus does a miracle where they catch so many fish that the nets are tearing. So, in the other Gospels, fishing isn't really about fish. It's about mission and evangelism and reaching people with the Gospel. And on this same sea where Jesus at first called Peter and Andrew... Peter has gone fishing. Verses 4 and 5. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. Just as day was breaking, the disciples had apparently fished throughout the night. That was normal. It's fishing when the fish are most active and are feeding. Light and darkness are common metaphors for good and evil in this gospel. Some commentators don't see any significance here to John's mention of daybreaking and take it simply to be a reference to time. I take the language to be intentional, that after an unsuccessful night of fishing, the daylight is breaking at the same time that they see the light of the world, Jesus, as he steps into the scene. From the darkness of the night, the light is coming who will point the disciples to truth and purpose. Jesus is standing on the shore, but John informs us that the disciples did not yet realize that it was a visit and a vision from the Lord. He asks them if they've caught anything, and the disciples tell him no. The fishermen have been unsuccessful at fishing. We come to our second scene, the catch of the day. Verse 6. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They still don't know that it's Jesus giving them instruction. I think this is where the symbolism in this passage really starts to take off. The fishermen had gone out and used their own abilities and intelligence to try to catch fish. And they couldn't do it. But we see their work blessed once they start to listen to Jesus. I appreciate Richard Phillips' commentary on this issue. He considers the struggles of churches in America to reach people with the gospel. So often, churches try to rely on what's catchy or trendy. So many churches try to be seeker-sensitive and focus on the newest and most popular worship songs. So many churches focus on practical sermons. I put that in quotes as well. Sermons that don't want to talk about sin and the need for repentance, but instead want to talk about things like parenting and finances and marriage, like a mix between a TED Talk and a Dave Ramsey show. I'm not saying that those subjects should never be part of preaching, but they shouldn't be all that preaching is. 
In a modern world with so many constant distractions, so much hustle, spiritual disciplines like prayer and devotional time are often seen as inconveniences and not prized means of communing with the Almighty. And we are reaping the terrible harvest of a country that is becoming increasingly secular. To address these crises, so many churches and quote-unquote experts try to reinvent the wheel and give different models for evangelism. In the process, so many churches and Christians are distracted and led the opposite direction from the beautiful simplicity of what evangelism and reaching people for Christ really involves. All it is is knowing people and making Jesus known to them. Doing it as Christ's ministers to the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sharing the one message that brings life and grace. I say this a lot on Sunday nights at our evening Bible study. But there's never been a time in human history where there are so many free resources available to know the Word of God. Almost any church you can think of records their sermons. Countless podcasts and YouTube channels that are dedicating to preaching and to teaching theology. God's Word for free. Some seminaries even put their classes online that can be accessed for free. And our cultural literacy of the Bible is terrible. We've tried fishing by our own devices and the nets are empty. Meanwhile, the nets are bursting in the southern hemisphere. Parts of Asia and Africa, Latin America, people are coming to Christ in droves. So many of the richest countries in the world are dying spiritually, while the church is flourishing largely in poorer countries. In many of those places, they don't have all the bells and whistles. They don't have whatever is trendy, or the newest and most innovative sound systems. What they have is the gospel. In the pursuit of reaching people with the gospel, it is following the words of Christ which leads to success. The disciples do this, and they're overwhelmed by their catch. No, this isn't some sort of prosperity gospel idea. It's about being faithful to Christ for the purpose of mission and for reaching people with the gospel and catching fish. Verse 7, the identity of Jesus is revealed and the disciples realize that it's the Lord. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. We see the haste with which Peter goes to Jesus. Verse 8, the rest of the group makes their way to the shore to be with Jesus. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. I, I chuckle because I can't help but wonder who, who won that race. If Peter's swimming and the disciples are just cruising past him in the boat. <laughs> We come to the third scene, breakfast with Jesus, verse 9. When they, got, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Notice the text says that Jesus had fish laid out. He already has fish as well as bread. 
They're on the shores of the same lake where Jesus had previously fed thousands with bread and fish. But on this day, as they're in a more intimate setting, Jesus makes that same meal for his disciples. Even though Jesus is the risen Lord, he's still serving. Verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. I love that. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. He doesn't say, bring some of the fish that I miraculously just allowed you to catch. Jesus allows the disciples to have some credit for what they've caught. It's also noteworthy that based on verse 9, Jesus already has fish. He doesn't need their fish. He had his own fish, yet he still allows the disciples to bring some of what they have before the Lord. But as I keep saying, this story is not primarily about fishing. It's primarily about the mission of God. What the disciples caught was because it had been given to them by Jesus in the first place. And Jesus allowed them to give back from what he had given them. And he blesses that. Once again, this is not some weird prosperity gospel message where if you give money, God will give it back to you sevenfold. We're talking about mission and reaching people. That we, everyone in this room, is equipped and gifted to serve and to build up the church. And that when we use our talents and abilities and gifts that Christ has given to us, when we put that to work for Christ and for the glory of God and in the name of Christ and for the kingdom of God, that Jesus blesses that. Jesus is all-powerful. He could have had all the fish he wanted. He could have caught everything. But he allows his followers to participate in this meal by helping to supply the bounty. For us today, Jesus still allows us to participate in his world as his missionaries and ministers of the gospel. In the beginning of our time, I talked about the first miracle we see from Jesus in this gospel. When Jesus turned water into wine. That miracle set the tone for his entire ministry and pointed forward to the new covenant that Jesus would usher in. This is his last miracle in John's gospel, and it again points forward. It points forward to the life of his disciples and of his church after he's gone. In this passage, we see the bounty that he will provide for his church as it faithfully goes into the world to serve the mission that he has for us. Verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. The fact that the net was not torn, perhaps a secondary miracle. The passage mentions 153 fish. Commentators have gone to incredible lengths to try to find any meaning in the number 153. Usually when you see numbers in the Bible, there's some sort of meaning to them. Numbers like 3 and 7 and 12 and 40, common numbers in the Bible. But 153, I thought some of these attempts were amusing. Jerome, the great 4th century theologian, argued that there were 153 different species of fish, which represented all of the fish in the world, meaning that God's mission was to go and to be for all of the people of the world. But even in Jerome's day, it's argued that 
ancient zoologists had already cataloged more than 153 different types of fish. Today we know of over 34,000 fish species. Some have tried to take different phrases in Greek or Hebrew and add up the numerical value of the letters. So like if it was English, A would be 1, B 2, C 3, Z would be 26. Finding a phrase, adding up the number values of the letters to get that to equal 153. I'm never a fan of that interpretation of things in the Bible because I feel like it makes it like a Ouija board. I once saw a documentary on numerology of the Bible and they were arguing that basically they could predict every single specific thing that's ever happened in human history by this method. Again, it's superstition. 153 is the triangular number of 17, if you're wondering what is a triangular number. Let's say you have the number 4. <laughs> the number 4, you would add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, which would equal 10. If you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 all the way to 17, that equals 153. Maybe it's that. The problem with that is, what is the significance of the number 17 in the Bible? Augustine, one of the great theologians of church history, far smarter than I will ever be, saw that as you have 10 commandments plus the sevenfold spirit of God in Revelation 1, 4, 17. I think that's a bit of a reach. In John 6, 13, after Jesus feeds the multitudes, you do have leftovers, 12 loaves and 5 fish. 12 plus 5 also equals 17. I still think that's a reach. I think... 153 is simply the actual number of fish that were caught, and there's no symbolic value to the number. It's just a lot of fish. It's another one of these details in John's Gospel that he mentions that I believe point to the historicity of his Gospel. We've talked about some of these things before. Things like women discovering the empty tomb. Not a detail that would make much sense to make up in the ancient world where women were second-class citizens who couldn't testify in court. It doesn't make sense to lie about that. The temple, where Jesus did so much of his ministry, was destroyed about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. That's not a whole lot of time. So for people who suggest that John's Gospel was written like a couple hundred years later... Modern archaeology has been able to confirm specific gates that John mentions in his gospel that correspond to the reality of what we now know about the temple through modern archaeology. And there's lots of little examples like that. Um, John gives all sorts of specific details in this gospel. And here we have the obscure detail, also by Malchus being mentioned by name. Somebody who has no value to the story or real relevance to mention his name gets mentioned. Details like that. So John gives all these specific details in this gospel. And this obscure number, such as 153, all of these things, I would argue, point forward to the historicity of this book. And lots of other examples. Continuing in our passage, the last three, three verses, 12 through 14. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I can hear Robbie. Um, As we've already mentioned, Jesus invites the disciples to join him for a meal that he has prepared. Meals are important, really in the whole Bible, but also in the Gospels. Obviously, there's the Last Supper where Jesus instituted communion. And the Gospels, there are meals where Jesus is invited by other people to dine. In the Gospel of Luke, it's over a meal where Jesus reveals himself as the risen Lord to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has done miracles with meals where he's fed thousands. Jesus' ministry begins at a wedding feast. Here it's ending with another feast among the Lord and his disciples. Jesus provides for his disciples and he provides for his church. And he's inviting these disciples to enjoy the meal that he has prepared. And Revelation, heaven is depicted as a great wedding feast. And Jesus is the guest of honor, the Lamb. For those disciples that morning, as they sat near the Sea of Galilee, eating a meal with Jesus, it was just a foretaste of the meal that they would enjoy later. A simple meal. But in that moment, they had everything they could ever need. They were in the presence of the Lord, and they were in fellowship with one another. The promise for all who believe in Jesus is that we too will one day come to his table and dine with him. As the disciples helped to supply this meal, Jesus invites his church to invite guests to the next meal, the wedding feast in heaven. The verse says that none of the disciples dared ask ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's a bit cryptic. I think Grant Osborne is probably right when he says that the awe of the disciples in that moment Jesus had been their friend and teacher, but now he is their risen Lord and Savior. And the disciples are experiencing the glory and majesty of Christ in new ways. At the end of the passage, John mentions that it was the third time Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. John is linking this episode back to the previous appearances where he had appeared to the disciples on Easter night and later to Thomas. In this passage, we see the mission of the church in reaching people symbolized by the catching of fish. That all of us are called by Jesus to go out into the waters and to go fishing, to bring people to Jesus. But we also see in this passage that the success of our efforts is not based on us or our ability or our strength, but rather... It is based in using what Jesus has given us to follow the great fisherman who is faithful. Evangelism is something that we've talked a lot about these last few months. I'm sure for some, what we're saying now will go in one ear and out the other. Kind of like when I say to get baptized. (laughs) But this is something that matters to Christ. We have people in our lives where we have opportunities to witness to And to share the love of Christ and the good news of Jesus. In his goodness, Jesus has given us the privilege of serving him in the world for his gospel purposes, for reaching people. It's not meant to be a chore. It's not a punishment. It's a blessing. My generation, the millennial generation, is having an existential crisis with work. And a major factor of job satisfaction 
is feeling like you're making a difference. That's an admirable goal. And it taps into one of the great longings of the human soul. That we do want to make a difference. We want to be part of something that matters and that's significant. And that's why Christ's call upon the church to serve the world through spreading the gospel is a great blessing to the church. Because it is being part of something significant. Something with purpose. Something that matters. Something that gives purpose. And we can do that regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of what our job is or if we're retired. Regardless of who our neighbor is. Who our family is. That we have opportunities. And it's serving something with eternal purposes. That's what Jesus invites us to do. Not alone. But with Jesus and as his church. That is the last thing that we see from this passage. That Jesus is connected to his followers in meaningful ways when they are gathered together in his name. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your goodness, for your gospel. And Lord, may we go into the world looking for opportunities to share your goodness with others and to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.